A History of Live Sound with Chris Sam. When I was a teenager, I would sometimes watch the news, partly because that's what cool teenagers did, but mainly because it was on Straight After Neighbours. And it seemed that for a few summers around 1991 and 1992, the headline news over the summer was illegal raves and the convoy of people that attended them. Middle England was scared. Good evening. Hundreds of travellers and hundreds of police officers are tonight continuing their cat and mouse game around the West Country. So far, the police have managed to stop the travellers congregating for a huge free festival over the coming weekend. Most activity is centred in the north of Avon and in South Gloucestershire. In a moment, we examine the extent of the police force's powers. But first, Graham Gardner describes the latest situation in the laybys between Gloucester and Stroud. These free parties have been going on since the late 80s. But with the publicity from sensational newspaper coverage and being headline news on the TV, the numbers attending kept increasing. The culmination of this first generation of free parties was the Castle Mawson Common Festival in May 1992. The music journalist Simon Reynolds wrote that During the next five days of its existence, Castle Mawson will inspire questions in Parliament make the front page of every newspaper in England and incite nationwide panic about the whereabouts of the next destination. When did the last music festival you went to do that? The local MP Michael Spicer claimed that residents had to undergo psychiatric treatment in the days that followed. The moral panic led to new legislation to curb outdoor free parties, which was known as the 1994 Criminal Justice Bill. It specifically outlawed playing music that incorporated sounds wholly or predominantly characterised by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats. This led some people in the scene to be more politically active, as demonstrated by the Prodigy releasing their album Music for the Jilted Generation, featuring the song Their Law, which is very not safe for work. And who was there setting up the Bedlam sound system at Castle Morton? It was this week's guest, Steve Bedlam. Let's hear how he started. Were you a DJ who was interested in sound, or were you someone who liked going to parties, or were you a sound engineer in the first place? Oh, no, it wasn't that. Um, no, so in, in terms of the, the rave scene, the, the raving aspect of it, the Bedlam sound system. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, for me, the love of sound systems and the love of not so much audio, but the love of sound systems, the culture, the lifestyle started when I was really, really young growing up in, you know, on a council estate in Hackney and listening to mostly reggae music and hip hop music, you know, in the eighties. Mm. Um, and having my mum and all of her friends going to blues parties on the estate or to other estates. I always remember walking into, you know, as a kid, as a kind of, you know, from 10 years old or nine years old or whatever, because on the estate, you know, when, when there was a party happening, everyone just went, kids and everything. I remember walking into rooms that were virtually pitch black with like a, you know, one or two lights on with this massive heavy sound going on. I know now that they were just big jammo speakers that were stuck in a corner 
you know. <laughs> but to me, I was like, what is going on in here? You know, it was a lot of what I now know to be sound pressure. And I just loved it from really young age, really. I guess I started going out. And yeah, when I was 12, 13 years old, we would go out to these blues parties on the estate, early doors, obviously, and then get kicked out when it gets a bit later on. And then from then on, in my teens, going to clubs, I'm going to say teens, I'm my early teens, going to reggae sound clashes in Hackney, in people's houses, in church mm. halls, in community centres, and just seeing these huge stacks of speakers with wires just flowing everywhere. I mean, you know, it's still it's still a bit of a phenomenon for me how like, later on when I owned um, you know my own equipment and I owned a PA company and a manufacturing company with with partners and we would always go right we need you know big thick cable to run base end you go to a reggae sound system they're still running off two mil one and a half mil cable that they bought from a shop because it was the cheapest cable they could find and they're running it over 30 40 meters across the floor of the party you know, and it's held in with an XLR, and you're thinking, where the hell is this sound coming from? So it always baffled me, you know, later on in life. And, but during those days, I would have a peek behind the sound system and just see this muddle of cable. And even like, you know, they would have these reels of cable, and they would still be coiled up running bass bins. Now, I now know that's a bad idea. <laughs> but then people would just, that's what people did. They used to call it stringing up the sound. You know, the reggae artists would string up the sound, the reggae sound systems. And so I, I was fascinated from an early days, you know. And mm. um, as kids on the estate, me and you know, my mates, we always said, yeah, we're going to have a sound system, we're going to have a sound system. We always come up with these weird names that we were going to call our sound system. But back then it was a reggae sound system. It wasn't anything else, you know. I guess from then I would go out raving when I started getting into rave music and the systems at the raves back in sort of early 89 was just these massive, you know, I thought the reggae sound systems were big, you know, these rave ones were just massive piles of speakers and phenomenal, you know, some of it was terrible sound system, but back then you were, you know, pop a pill and it didn't really matter what the sound system was, to be honest, you know, you just got on with it and you just raved because it wasn't about that so much it was about the atmosphere but mm. the sound i just got really intrigued with the physical boxes and i was one of those people that would go and stick my head inside boxes and listen to the tones and listen to the the bass lines and stand there and get massaged on some sound systems so like it's the physical aspect of it sometimes as well as the sound aspect absolutely yeah well the physical aspect was a big thing for me because what i used to love doing and what i did throughout my whole sound system life is when i set a sound system up in a party i would set it up walk around and if there was holes i'd try and physically move the sound system to get the holes filled, you know, again, later on in life, once we realize you can do that in other ways, electronically, or, you know, um, putting boxes separately, you know, different spacing between them and all that kind of stuff. You can fill those holes. But at the time you're literally moving boxes around, you know, trying to get those holes filled and trying to get that wavelength, you know, to go everywhere. Mm. And so, yeah, for me, it was, it, it started off really, I was always fascinated in the sound and the boxes, the physical yeah. size of them, and why when you 
got a big box in a small room, it often doesn't do what a small box does in a small room. I remember doing a venue called The Dungeons um, in Hackney, which is where I first, one of the first rave venues I'd ever go to. It was um, like in 89 we would go there. And it was like arches underneath a big pub. Concrete arches. And I later put sound systems in there. And the first time I did it, I went in there and I stuck a big pile of speakers down one end and turned it on and it sounded awful. It was atrocious. It's like, what the hell's going on here? We were doing several of the arches and it sounded awful for the sound check. Then the room next door, which was supposed to be the kind of more mellow, chilled room, we only put one stack aside in there. Whereas the main room, we put like six stacks in there. Mm. And the second room just sounded awesome. And I learned a lot from doing that. You know what I mean? That less, yeah. The less is more thing. Yeah. Wavelength, sounds, how they react to a curved ceiling, how they react when the, when the venue's full to when they're empty. So, yeah, for me, that, that was the eye-opener for me and how it all mm. started. And, you know, and we kind of... When we bought our first sound system, it was actually off a company called Audio Lease. Do you heard of them? They're, I do remember Audio Lease. I've got a feeling they're in Norfolk somewhere. They might have been. I mean, they were in... Oh, no, you know what? They were up in Cambridge, but that was after they left London. Ah. So they were in London, which is actually just down the road from where I am now in Tottenham. And I remember buying a sound system from them via a guy called Michael Jackson. He got in touch with them, and basically what we bought was six double-15 court acoustic bass bins. Oh, lovely. Yeah. We bought two Martin Audio filler shaves. We bought two JBL 2482 mid-compression drivers, horns, massive, like, fog horns on them. And then we bought two JBL 2441 tweeters as well. And that was another thing that really confused me is how was I getting, you know, a mid-range out of a compression driver? You know, and then, and then mm. that's when I learned about splitting the sound up with frequencies. And actually that system was an old Brit Row Pink Floyd system. Uh, it was part of the old Pink Floyd system. I learned a lot from being part of that sound because we love the sound of the bass bins. We love the sound of the 2482 mid-high. And we loved the sound of the high. We didn't love the sound of the filler shaves. I was like, what's going on with these filler shaves? They're just sounding too high. You know, they sound like there's no mid bass going on. There was no yeah. low mid. And someone said to me, oh, you need to take the phase bung out. Because in the box, where you've got the two 12 inches that are like on an angle to each other. Mm-hmm. And on each side, you've got the driver. And then you've got this phase bung that sits in front of the driver. And it would shape the sound. So the sound would, from the 12-inch would go up and around and out onto the horn mouth. And I was like, oh, right, what does that do? And then they explained to me, you know, that if you've got a really long horn, the phase bung adds like a half a meter length to the horn without actually being a physical horn. And the shape of it means that the concentrated sound that comes out of that driver is all the stuff from the middle of the driver which is much more of a high range sound than what's coming out of the edges the reflex aspect which is more bass i was like that's fascinating you know so i was like wow it's yeah. amazing so i took them apart took those out 
And then I lowered the frequency of the box on the crossover. Good old BSS FDS 360. Amazing, oh, yes. amazing things with the cards. You know, the ones where you put the cards Yeah, yeah, the, cards the, the, the cards and the mute buttons that yeah. come on when you power them up. So if you lose power, then your system stops. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I did that and we lowered them down. We lowered these filler shaves down to 100 hertz. So we were running the subs from 30 to 100 and then 100 up to 500. And then we had this 2-inch 2482 going from 500 hertz compression driver, 500 hertz up to 6 or 7K. And then we had the 2441 going from 6 or 7K right up to 20. Four-way system. It was immense, absolutely immense. I mean, those filler shaves were just the best boxes I've ever seen after that. You know, they were just like amazing, you know, learned so much from that one system. It's interesting that when I've spoken to people, Pink Floyd and their purchase of PO system seems to figure highly in a lot of pro audio (laughs) for the next 20 years. Yeah, well, I think they used a lot of court, didn't they? A lot of court acoustic in the early days. Stephen Court, I think his name was. I mean, they were big, heavy, birch ply boxes. In the end, when we started noise control audio, we replaced that double 15, or Ray Ray Grant, who was a designer who you should speak to, really. He's absolute genius boffin. He came up with a single 12-inch box. We loved the double 15. We loved the W-bin design. We loved it. Mm. And he came up with a 12-inch W-bin, single 12, that kicked the shit out of a double 15 and was more than half the size. Nice. You know, and that's the box that we've yeah. least blown drivers and all things. You know, we started off with Fane RCF, then 18 sound drivers. Well, and you know, the design inside is just immaculate the way he's done it. So we wanted to keep that W bin design, you know, because we love that sound of the W bin. When I started, I started at a venue called the Roadhouse in Manchester, and it was court bins in there. <laughs> and for years, I was striving to make every gig sound as good as that place because <laughs> they, they didn't do subs so much as bass yeah i felt yeah and these days it seems that everyone's very good at doing sub mm. but there isn't so much emphasis on well especially bass. in a line array i mean the line arrays to me they're missing a huge chunk of bass and mid bass from their whole system and you know there's a couple of line arrays that do the job but they're not really line arrays mm. do you know what i mean the martin audio longbow but really a line away. It's just a massive point source turned on its side. And it's same as VDOS. You know, the VDOS system is just, that's such a massive box that's, you look inside it, and the only line away element is the top end. The rest of it yeah. is just a point source system, you know, in my opinion. We, we miss out a lot of, lot of sound without, without point source. But I get it. Convenience, you know, when you were talking about earlier, you know, talking to the temptations and what drove that change the, I think the main drive was convenience. Yeah. You know. Consistency, I suppose, as well. The fact that you could have something that sounded fairly similar night to night. Yeah. Yeah, similarly boring night to night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's that, do you want consistency or do you want to touch greatness every now and again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, obviously, when we started doing noise control, Function 1 had sold Turbo and come up with Function 1, which is basically a Turbo system isn't it you know we redesigned it's, it's the next the next generation yeah turbo, exactly yeah and um you know people always compared the two sounds and i don't get me wrong i've heard function one sounding absolutely amazing but it all depends on who's driving it 
And what we yeah. did with noise control was we tried to make it so that it was, in the nicest possible terms, idiot-proof. You know, so when we designed the boxes, the boxes were designed so that they would go next to each other and touch each other. And that the horn mouth and the flares were designed to have minimal phasing with those boxes touching each other. And obviously, every time you add another box on, you lose a bit more, you know, dispersion. Whereas the function boxes, we used to have an industry joke, was it depends on how thick your fist was <laughs> to whether or not you got a good sound out of the function boxes. Because before they made the banana boards, you know, you'd literally have to guess how far the boxes were apart. We yeah. used to say there was a guy called Pete Whitehead, uh, Pistol Pete. And Pistol Pete used to make the sound system, make functions sing. Just made it amazing, you know. Best I've ever heard it. And we used to say that Pete's fist, you know, was the right size. <laughs> you know, because he used to get it right. And then they brought out the banana boards where you had to have them in a certain position. Because I think they realized that their sound was getting a really bad reputation for sounding awful at times. And then mm. Tony Andrews and uh, the other chap. Was, uh, John, 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 John Newsom, yeah. So t- Tony or John would turn up at a party and lose their shit and go up there and move the boxes around or whatever and get it right again. It would sound great again. But when we designed noise control, we really wanted idiot-proof. So you stacked it in this way, and it sounded the same every yeah. single time you stacked it in that way. You know? So once you'd bought your first system and you were starting to take it around town and, and do odd shows, mm. was this all sort of in a, an illegal party sort of yeah. scene or were you doing official venues? No, no, no. We didn't do anything official for years. Everything we did was illegal. Everything, literally everything, yeah. I mean, was there a risk to that of like trying to get your gear out quickly enough before someone came and took it away? Or? It, was a, it was a fine balance of... Um, we would judge the situation. Where are we going to get it confiscated? Where are we going to get it trashed? You know, do we stop based on those um, criteria? I mean, at the beginning, we literally just told all the police to fuck off. Literally, they come to the door and go, fuck off, go away. You know, we weren't interested. But slowly, as you've been battered once too many times and had your equipment thrown on the floor and trashed, and you learn to be a bit more diplomatic and, you know, and we would... Sometimes we would agree to shut off, and that was the end of it, and sometimes we would barricade the doors. It all depends on where we were, when we were, how many people we had in there, what, who the people were we had in there. You know, yeah. If we had a load of people in there that we knew was up for having, a, having an argument, having a you know, fight in the battle, then we'd stay on. Mm. You know, and if we, knew, if we had like a load of you know, nightclub people coming out for an experience then we wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we knew that they wouldn't stand tall for the sound system, you know. Because a, yeah. a lot of people, see, that wording, sound system, you know, there's some crews didn't even have a sound system, but they were a crew. They would rent a sound system. They were a crew of DJs, yeah. and they would go and hire a sound system, and they would put it under a false name. So when it got, when it got nicked, they walked away, and they didn't have to worry about it. We never wanted that you know for us like i wouldn't leave the venue unless the sound system was in a van and neither would half of our crew the sound system was the heart of it it wasn't us it wasn't the djs it wasn't music it was the boxes you know and that was a major part of it and a lot of people didn't have that so they kind of sound system thing didn't really didn't really work you know 
it's a bit like festivals. Uh, Glastonbury's a festival. Reading's a concert. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So some people yeah, yeah. own some people. Would, well, although Reading call themselves a festival, you know, some people would own a sound system, sleep on top of the sound system, bail it out when it was in trouble, da, 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 and others wouldn't. You know, and that's yeah. there, there's the difference. You know? Everything that happens at somewhere like Reading is a commercial yeah. operation, whereas you can walk around the furthest reaches of the Glastonbury site, and you find people doing things with systems that they've had for years because it's their first love and exactly, uh, absolutely I, I still remember i think it's about 2004 or 5 when most of the stages at glastonbury had moved onto line array that year right and there was lots of grumbling and moaning about it <laughs> and i wandered around the far ends of the site and found a massive court system tops and subs and there was a big Soundcraft 800 <laughs> at front of house, and the guy mixing it was literally—I could see him like having to like put his elbow in to be able to turn the knobs on it. It was—it was unwieldy, shall we say? <laughs> but it sounded—it was the best thing I heard all mm. weekend. I was like, "This, this shouldn't be right. This, this is <laughs> all thirty years old." <laughs> yeah, but it yeah. sounds—it's the best sound I've heard on the whole site. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of love in that, though. That's the thing. Do you know what I mean? And also, the early early line arrays were terrible. I mean, absolutely. The, the original Nexo. Oh my god, it was just the worst thing. I remember standing in front of a Nexo line array at a convention center plaza or one of those. Mm. No, it was in Germany. It was in a big outdoor one in Germany, and I remember standing in front of it. And what I used to do, like I said earlier, you know, I would walk around the room, you know, and hear where the sound sounds good, where it sounds bad. Da, da, da. And with line array, because it was a line array, I would stand right at the front so I could hear the tops or see if I could hear the tops. And I would walk backwards for about 30 meters. And, oh, my God, the change in sound. You know, it's supposed to be, that's, the, that's where it's supposed to be the same sound all the way, right? Right in yeah. the middle, Linear all the way to the back of the field. It's supposed to be the same sound. Every 10 foot, something changed. There'd be top, no tops at the beginning, then tops, then no bass, then no mid, and always no low mid, just never any low mid. You know, and I just, I, that's why we, I mean, one of the reasons why we never went down that road of building one, which is one of the reasons probably why we're no longer a company, mm. because everyone went down that road for convenience. You know? Literally, yeah. I remember we we did a sound at Glastonbury for a long time for one of one of the venues, and this venue, big outdoor venue, and granted with our system, even flown, there was noise complaints too far away, and I grant that the point source downside is being able to keep the sound in, you know. That is yeah. the downside. I mean, even though our tops had a horn dispersion of five degrees up and 25 degrees down, you know, so it wasn't just a, like, you know, an equal, yeah. you know, it was like it wasn't that. firing up into the sky. Yeah, doing nothing, right? So, but granted, we did have issues with noise problems further, further away. So they changed it for a line array system. Now, the, the people who hired us, they hired us because of our sound. They love noise control sound. They just like, it's in all their other venues. They love it. And Glastonbury basically said, you've got too many complaints. You've got to change the sound. So they got in 
line array and they got in the Martin they got in MLA saying this is fully steerable, it's absolute load of tosh. I don't know if you've tried it out, but I can hear main stage from the common where I work and I'm behind the system. So I don't know about this steerable rubbish. But anyway, they were like, it's steerable, it will keep the sound in. So they did it. They got no complaints because it was better at keeping the sound in. Mm. And I remember going up to the owner, the guy who books us for every other event, anywhere he does anything, he books us. And I went, oh, how, how was it this year? You know, And he was like, oh, brilliant. It was brilliant. I was like, oh, wow. Did, did you like the sound? He went, oh, no, it was awful. But I got no complaints. And I kind of had a realization that this is somebody who's knows what sound is, knows is really respected person. I still massively respect him. He knows what it is. He knows that our sound was a better sound, but to compromise with festival because of noise complaints, he now has this MLA system, which is awful. And um, he's like, yeah, but it was great because I didn't get any complaints. So mm. to me, that's too much of a compromise. Yeah. But, you know, he's very astute and outside of that event, he will always use our kit because he knows, he loves the sound of it. Basically. So it's interesting that we assume that things have got better over the years, but maybe was there a golden age before sort of 94 when people were turning up in fields and putting up sound systems to whatever specification they liked? Was that maybe a bit of a golden age? Because <laughs> well, there was, were no restrictions. Yeah, I mean, look, there's very little events that you can go and do whatever the fuck you want. Do you know what I mean? Very little yeah. events, sound-wise. And if you, if you can, they're probably illegal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you're getting away with it because you're not supposed to be doing it, right? So I don't know about golden era. I mean, for me, the 90s was my golden era because that was when I was doing it. But you still can't beat that wardrobe rumble of reggae bass lines from a old sound system in a community hall where your legs are shaking, everything's flapping around the place, you know, but the sound was good. And I still don't mind, like Channel One, you know Channel One? Reggae sound system. Uh, yeah, reggae sound system. And they're doing using the old scoops boxes, front-loaded 10 inches and 12 inches for their mid-range and pizos for their tops. And you think, what a pile of rubbish. But the sound is amazing. And it's all about the tweaking that they, they use, the components they use pre-amplifiers. They're using, um, you know, all that stuff. I mean, they use an old Vestax turntable. With, on a bit of foam with an old, you know, a need, it shouldn't sound good, but it sounds amazing. Yeah. And I think the combination is not just audiophile sound, but is a combination of love, um, passion, do you know what I mean? And dedication of years of dedication, tweaking those boxes. It's trying things out and experimenting. Absolutely. I, I mean, they, they always try and not amplifiers out, you know, like we used to have, um, we used to have our amps made by a company called FFA full fat audio mm. great amplifiers but we would take them to reggae sound systems and they'd go yeah they ain't got the weight you can be talking about they ain't got the weight they're, 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 they're huge amplifiers I get the sound out but with their boxes it didn't work and so yeah. they wouldn't buy them you know and they would do something else they'd buy something else like, I've still got the original I just found the original Bedlam sound system amps and we had mm. five or six of these amps and they're called fan amps 
and they were homemade by Audio Lease by a guy called John who worked for Audio Lease. And it's a big ass black box with two XLRs in and out and two XLRs out for the speaker. So you've got an in and out, mm. signal in and out, and a light. No volume control, no nothing like that. And we used to run them on our, on our subs and our bass and our, and our bass and our mids, and then now we'd have other amplifiers for the rest, more refined ones that you could tweak. But for the bass end, we would use these. Now, we bought them off of Audio Lease, plugged them all up, and they worked great. And then one day I had to get one fixed and I took it somewhere and they were like, what the hell is this? It's homemade, you know, and there's nothing to it. The only thing that's inside is two big, massive toroidal uh, transformers in there with some circuitry and a bit of this and a bit of that. And the guy was looking at me, he was going, oh my God. And, you know, he goes, I'll try and fix it for you. He goes, it shouldn't be too hard. And then when I got back, he went, you know what these are, don't you? I went, what do you mean? He goes, they're 73 watts aside. I'm like... <laughs> I think it's 73 watts a side. He said, I've tested them. I had them on a scope. I've had a meter. I've had everything. He goes, they're 73 watts a side in eight ohms, stereo amplifier in eight ohms, bridged, and we run them down to 200, down to two ohms. And um, and they were putting out six to 800 watts at two ohms. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he was like, okay. And then he comes to our party and he's going, is that what those amps are doing? I'm like, yeah. I don't understand. They shouldn't do that. And these amps were built for the Pink Floyd tour with audio lease, you know, specifically wow. for that. And they weigh a ton, you know, they weigh a ton. But yeah, they're 73 watts a side at eight ohms. I guess when you bridge them and then you run it at two ohms, you're getting six to 800 watts out of it. Mental. <laughs> Mental. But, you know, nowadays we'd use a, a 1U, you know, yeah. amplifier and do 20K. <laughs> It should it shouldn't make sense, but it does. It does, yeah, absolutely does, yeah. It sounds uh, great, but you know, mother's the necessity of invention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> necessity is the mother of invention. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Join us in part two, where we hear about Castle Morton blagging PA back from the police, building their own speakers as noise control audio, and Steve's work with the Refugee Crisis Kitchen. A History of Life Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow, executive producer at Spare Women, and is a bandwidth production.